Hello, I'm Maha Khan Phillips, Editor of Professional Investor at CFA UK. Welcome to the latest episode of the CFA UK In Conversation podcast. This is a show for investment professionals focusing on a whole manner of topics and interesting insights that are affecting the profession today. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Professor Raghu Rao, who is the Sir Evelyn de Rothschild Professor of Finance at Cambridge Judge Business School and the Mercer School Memorial Professor of Business at Gresham College. He is also a past president of the European Finance Association and a past editor of Financial Management. He is a founder and director of the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance and a member of the Cambridge Corporate Governance Network. He is also one of the co-authors of a 2019 study entitled Till Death or Divorce Do Us Part, Early Life, Family Disruption and Fund Manager Behavior. And that's in fact what we're gonna be talking about today. The study shows how traumatic childhood events can go on to impact a fund manager's investment decision-making even decades later. Welcome, Raghu. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure to join you on this podcast. Thank you. And can I start by asking you what attracted you and your co-authors to this area of trauma and investing? That's a very good question. Um, Well, you see, the, the thing, one of the problems we have in academic research is to establish what we call causality. Right. So that means does A cause B. So the problems we have in academic research is two things happen together, but they're not related to each other, just happen together. So they're correlated, but A doesn't cause B. It could also be that B causes A. Right. So you you really to, to be a real science, you have to show that something causes something else. Now, one of the things in investing behavior is people can say, okay, uh, for example, um, only risk-taking people will become investment professionals, for example, right? That's just a hypothesis which I have off the top of my head. Now, so what you do is you check the risk-taking behavior of these individuals. For example, do they fly single pilot plane, you know, single pilot planes? Do they have pilot licenses? That might be, okay, these guys are more risk-taking in some ways. And they are also the ones who do well in investment behavior. That's one possible way of proving that. The problem is you don't know what causes what. Maybe the successful people are the ones who say, you know what, I can, I'm successful in my professional life. I'm also going to be successful in flying planes. So the success in investment behavior causes them to fly planes. Right? So these are the problems you have in trying to establish whether A causes B. Now, the nice thing about trauma is that it's unexpected. That means, in other words, no one puts themselves into a place where they can receive a traumatic effect, right? We don't do that. And in particular, so two of my papers looked at trauma faced by uh, investment professionals and executives at points in time when they were, around the time when they were born or right before, you know, when they were growing up. And the reason is because at this point in time, you don't choose the trauma. It's basically, you know, something's happening to you. And more important, at the same time, you can establish a biological relationship between what physically happens to your brain between the age of 5 and 15 and what the effect of the trauma is. So to put this in a different context, you can establish a causal mechanism. You can say the effect of the trauma physically changes your brain, which later on has an impact on your behavior when you're 35 or 40 years old. 
That's so incredible. And before we talk about your findings, then, can we talk about the sort of focus of the study in terms of methodology? So you looked at mutual fund managers in the U.S. between 1980 and 2017, and you had a final sample of more than 500 fund managers and 5,241 funds. But what kind of drew you to that focus or that time period? It's certainly an interesting time period for markets, but was there a sort of a rationale behind that time frame? Yes, the, there is a very specific rationale. And the rationale is this availability of data. So, you know, in this particular case, one of the things we had to establish was the trauma in, in our, in our, in this paper was do your parents, either of your parents either die or get divorced while you're growing up? But how do you get that data, right? You can't call these people and say, you know, what happened when you're growing up? I mean, there's too much effort and they want it's private information. They want to give you that information. The beauty of um, this data is that in America, there is a rule that 72 years after a census is actually done, they release that data to the public. So in other words, you know, you have, you see exactly who was uh, in, in census one, who was married, census two, whose wife had died, whose husband had died, who got divorced. You can see the changes in family. And the last census, which we can take advantage of for this paper, was back in 1950. So you're looking at somebody who was born before 1950 and probably a professional investment manager, maybe at 30 or 35 years of age after that period. So that's why you need it. You cannot start before around the 1980s. And of course, 2017 is the latest when you can end it, right? But doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, the paper was published in uh, 2021. So we've started, we have some period of time after the data set, keep on seeing what the performance looks like. So that's the major reason. And can you talk us through some of your findings? Because they were so interesting. Of course. So the, the first thing we are looking for, the basic paper is very straightforward, right? So... The, uh, the first thing we say is there's something called the disposition effect, right? The disposition effect is straightforward. That is, um, if, you, if you have some kind of trauma or the other, do you realize gains more quickly or do you try to avoid the realization of losses in your portfolio, right? And we find that if your family is disrupted in some way, that of one of your parents or both your parents or divorce or whether of the parent, the disposition effect is significantly larger for these people. They try to avoid realizing losses. They try to realize gains faster. Right? We also look at the risk-taking behavior. For example, what is the total risk of their portfolios? And we find these guys avoid risk as well. So they try their best not to, you know, um, not to take risks, either upside or downside risk. Um, then, you know, we check, okay, is this a family that is causing it? So in other words, it's not necessarily uh, the death of the parent that is doing it, but maybe change in family circumstances. So maybe, you know, if your father dies, your family becomes much poorer. So the poverty is what's driving it, not the, not the actual, um, you know, the death. So we look and we control for the wealth of the family as well, others are still hold. Right. So, and then we also look at other, you know, robustness checks. So, for example, if something bad happens to the firm, like an exogenous uh, CEO turnover, which you cannot predict, or the firm decides I'm going to make an acquisition which you don't like, 
you tend to avoid those traumas quickly, faster than another person who is not affected by the trauma would be. I mean, so that's that's fascinating, but it, it also brings up this question about risk. So as you just said, um, these managers who've had this trauma um, have avoided the, bound, the downside, but they've also avoided the upside risks. So what are the implications for how we view risk? That's a good question. Now, the thing, of course, is we're not, not, we're not saying that this trauma has actually been bad for the company, I mean, for the mutual fund, right? I mean, if it had been bad for the mutual fund, that would have been an unequivocal thing, right? But these guys don't take upside risk, but they don't take downside risk either, so that returns are more stable over time. So um, there's no difference in performance. It's just that these guys don't take much that much risk. So in a way, you can't say that these are worse managers, right? These are just more risk-averse managers. And it goes back to your thing as an investor. What kind of a manager would you want to invest with, right? If you are maybe, I, I don't know, this is just speculation. Um, if you are on the verge of retirement and you have two funds, uh, which one would you rather go with? Possibly the one who takes less risks, right? I mean, you don't want you don't want this guy swinging for the fences, um, but just because they're much you know they they like taking risk a lot more. The problem, of course, is getting the data right because this data is not available to the common person. So much data. I mean, the amount of data you've had to crunch to reach these conclusions is astronomical. Exactly, exactly. That is the major problem. So this is all private information. I mean, the fund cannot really the fund cannot ask the manager. You know what? Tell me about your family, right? That's that's public information. So in a way, this was almost, you could say, more an academic exercise than practical advice, right? The, the reason why it was important for as an academic exercise was to show that stuff that happens to you when your brains are being formed, when your brain is, you know, in a stage of development, affects you much, much later in your life. Right? So this is one of a series of papers I've been working on. So it's another paper that shows that, you know, if you were born in an area um, where a bunch of natural disasters happened, but nothing ever happened to you personally, um, it, as a CEO, you take much more risk than a CEO for whom a disaster has had personal consequences. So in other words, you know, uh, you, you, you say, didn't give you an example. I, my first job was in Purdue University back in America. And uh, what happened there was, um, you know, they would have tornado warning go off every year. So when the tornado warning goes up, first year, we'd race down to the basement, you know, we'd close, you know, forget closing anything, get down to the basement, you shut, uh, shut the door and wait out the tornado warning. Second year, we're a little slower. Third year, we're like, you know, tornado warnings all the time. You turn off your computer. Maybe you go to the basement. Maybe you don't. But the point is, you get habituated to risk. And so you think risk is not a big deal. I can take more of this risk if that happens. So that's a non-linear effect on risk. Right? So those are the kind of things I'm investigating. How does it physically change your brain? Right? This risk and trauma and factors like that. So I know it's an academic exercise at this point, but at some point, are there practical implications? As you say, for the industry, you can't ask people about their trauma, of course. Um, but as you gather this type of data that's never been examined or analyzed before, 
Um, are there other questions that the investment industry should be asking itself? In a way, this is a troubling question. The reason is because, you know, a lot of these characteristics are also tied to protected characteristics, right? I mean, for example, uh, people who grew up in deprived neighborhoods, people who grew up in poor neighborhoods, um, they they are more likely to be subject to these kind of factors, right? And if you say, okay, I'm going to use those characteristics to infer things about these guys, that seems to me to be a little unfair, right? Because in the day, you know, they they have they have become fund managers, so uh, they they've had to actually do a lot more. In fact, there's a paper by a pair of authors in America who actually show that if you are born into a poor family, you have to work a lot harder to get to where you need to be than if you're born into a rich family. Yeah, of course. The, I think there's been a lot of evidence to support that. Exactly. So um, from my perspective, you know, actually using this practically to discriminate against somebody who has this effect, but it was, but it's also correlated with things like poverty. It's also correlated with things like, uh, you know, race and uh, gender. These are the kind of things which is, which is, which I would probably say, let's not try to draw too many implications. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking more in terms of behavioral analytics within a company. So, you know, if you're looking at how you're analyzing fund manager performance over a variety of different um, factors, right? You have like a hundred things that you're analyzing and saying you're very good at times of this and you're not very good at times of this. I was just wondering if in the future there would be a scope for a more sort of holistic approach to that. But it sounds like not really without getting into a lot of complexities that aren't very fair. Well, in a way, you might think about, you know, like sports, right? So if you think about basketball players, they're likely to be tall, right? If you think about uh, football players and American football players, they happen to be big and large um, and so on. So one is so like that. What we are basically saying is one thing which is changing is the shape of your brain. For example, in my paper, which I talked about for risk-taking um, uh, and executive behavior, the part of your brain that really develops differently is the, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, part of your brain. So in a way, what you're saying is biological changes make, make some people, some people's brains differently, wired differently when it comes to taking risks. So the only way I could say take, don't take, you know, uh, don't take protected characters into account is directly sticking these people into MRIs and then checking <laughs> the size of the brain is or where the brain is. But again, I'm very uncomfortable with all no, these. No, I don't think any of us want to see that world. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and Raghi, can you tell us a little bit about the stuff that you're working on now? You've mentioned your your other study, but is there other stuff in the pipeline that, that you want to highlight? My latest paper is actually looking at, and this is not complete yet, it just starting, uh, it's just in the middle of it right now, we're looking at uh, pollution. So the idea is, you know, in the old days, again, as you said, pollution is highly correlated with poverty, highly correlated with race and all that stuff. But one of the criticisms we got for our paper, the, the one on uh, exposure to natural disasters, um, that one was the parents can choose to stay in a particular area knowing that it has you know, there's tornado affected or whatever. So 
those are potentially a gene for risk-taking, which is passed on to their children, right? I mean, that is an explanation, but I don't buy that explanation, but definitely an explanation. So uh, in this paper, the idea is that you grew up in a neighborhood um, and you were fine, you grew up, no problem. And then later on, after, well after you grew up, the, um, the government says that is a super fun cleanup site. It was heavily polluted while you were growing up. The key is you don't know that you were, it was polluted, right? So there's pollution in the water, there's pollution in the air or whatever, but you didn't know that. And that affected your brain. So what I'm trying to show in this paper is, again, it affects your risk-taking ability. It affects your ability to judge risk as the CEO of a company. So these are rich people, but grew up in polluted neighborhoods. Turns out you take much more risk either for debt or equity. The firm does worse and you get fired faster. Really? Yeah. Wow. So that, that is like pollution really matters, even at the upper levels. You know, when you think that it doesn't matter, it matters. Can I tell you, I mean, I grew up in Karachi in Pakistan, which is a pretty polluted place. And I have to say, I don't think my parents were particularly risk-taking um, in their decision to grow up, you know, remain in the city in which they were born or not born, but raised. I mean, uh, I think that's an odd argument personally to make, but uh, it's interesting to see, to, to think that that pollution might have had an impact on my life. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in Delhi, which is equally polluted, if not worse. I think it's worse, so. yeah. It's that small <laughs> that you guys get, it's terrible. Exactly. So, yeah, I don't think my parents are thinking about it either. But the point about all these things is they do have an impact on your the biological structure of your brain, right? People have talked about, you know, pollution affecting people, but it does, they only look at poverty, right? And it's difficult to distinguish poverty from pollution. Here we are saying, you're not poor anymore. You're actually a very successful person, but relative to other successful people, you're not as successful. Fascinating. Fascinating to hear all this work being done. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Can we talk now about social finance and social signals and how that um, frames this discussion and how you are as an individual and in society. That's exactly my research question, right? We are, I'm trying to find out exactly how those social signals affect your decision to invest in something or even your decision to believe something or not, right? So one of the things we have in, uh, and um, by the way, in addition, beyond that is another complicating factor, which is the availability of information to you is also brokered by social media. Uh, so in other words, the truth which you get based on, you know, what you click on in your Facebook page or your, um, you know, uh, any social media site you use is actually tailored to you by an algorithm, which makes your site very different from um, even your partner's site. You might have the same friends, you might have the same, you know, everything is identical except a single link which you clicked on, which he didn't, or vice versa, means that both your feeds are completely different 10 days later, right? So you're now saying, okay, I think this is correct because this is the information I'm getting. And, you know, they're thinking, everybody else is thinking they are getting the same information as you are. How do you actually come to a point when you say, I know what you're thinking because I know what information you have. I mean, how do you come to a consensus? These are much, much more difficult concepts when then you say, okay, there is a truth out there, right? And the truth is we can all arrive at the truth. But this, uh, there are some narratives which are amplified by the media 
and some which are media you respond to, I mean, the media you subscribe to might be different from the media I subscribe to. So, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the echo chamber, isn't it? Exactly right. So, I mean, you have these signals, mm-hmm. um, and, and how do they then relate to how you think about social finance? Well, let's get, take an example, right? So, we know, for example, that people from poor socioeconomic neighborhoods. Um, they talk to each other, but they invest much more in lottery stocks. Lottery stocks are stocks that don't do any very well. They are basically uh, like buying a lottery ticket. This is most likely the company is going to go bankrupt, but in some cases the company might suddenly succeed. Most of the time, these guys don't. The portfolios do very badly simply because of the fact that lottery stocks don't pay off most of the time. Right, but. The choice of investing in a lottery stock is also driven by who you talk to. So in other words, um, these if I would not invest in a lottery stock, and I don't think any of my friends would invest in any of those, but I do know that if I did invest in a lottery stock, which did pay off, I would tell all my friends, who in turn would say, oh, okay, you know, um, lottery stocks seem to do well on average, because that's doing for a sample size of one. Right? <laughs> so... Is is that feedback effect in a way that is important here? Right? What um, and uh, another example would be a paper which I'm finished on right now is: Do investors pay more attention to male managers, male fund managers, relative to female fund managers? Right? Again, this is a social concept because male managers are much more dominant than female managers in the industry, right? There's 85% male fund managers and 15% female fund managers. And there have been papers that say that investors don't pay attention to women. So they don't pay attention to women, and therefore the fund management industry gets its profits from assets under management. So it hires men rather than women simply because the investors would pay more attention to men than to women. It's not, they're not gender discriminating, it's just this way. The problem with that, of course, is most people, in at least in the West, have no idea who their fund managers are. Right? The male or the female, I don't know. So it turns out we actually got data from a company in China where the, the app, literally the first thing when you choose to invest in a fund, the first thing it shows you the picture of the fund manager right there on the page in front of you. You can't, you can't invest without seeing the manager in in your in, in your face. And what we show is actually there's an attention effect. That means, in other words, when you do well, you get a lot of money as a male. When you do badly, people take money away from you. When you're a woman, when you do well, they don't give you as money, as much money as they would a man. But when you do badly, they don't take as much money away either. Basically, the women are just ignored. I don't even know how to respond to that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it can be good news, too, right? I mean, you think about it from this thing. So you do well, you don't get as much money, but you do badly, you don't get fired as frequently because you're being ignored. Well, I'm not sure how to celebrate the fact that women are being ignored, but it's interesting insight. It really is. Yes, it is. It is an interesting insight. We, 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 are, we position the paper as saying, look, if you're saying that we don't hire women because people don't pay attention to women, that's that actually is not the right way to look at it because the fund flows are much more stable, right? The assets under management are much less volatile, which means you might want to hire more women because you're getting stable in which means you can invest a lot more. So, well, of the many reasons that you should hire women, I agree that should be one of them. 
Well, well, that's true. <laughs> thank you so much, Raghu. That was such an interesting discussion and, and it went into so many different areas, which I really appreciate. Um, and thank you to everyone for listening. Remember to look out for the next episode of our In Conversation podcast through the usual CFA UK email and social media channels. You can also subscribe so that you don't miss an episode through CFA UK's SoundCloud channel or Apple Podcasts. Thank you. Thank you, Mom.